Hey, what up? This is Shegs from ShegsAndStuff.com, and this is part two of a black series through the Old Testament book of Esther, and today's blog post is titled, Persia's Next Top Model. So my wife is one of the few people that I really confide in. Like, my wife in particular knows things about me that no one else does. Like, things that might make you laugh your head off, and some that might actually make you cry and I tell you what man there are days when I can't get I can't wait to get home to share with her some profoundly insightful lesson that God just taught me about myself about God himself or some <laughs> some juicy rumor I just heard I like I can't wait to get home to share with her uh, and I'm deeply grateful to God for my wife uh, not only because she loves me and actually likes me but because oftentimes uh, realistically she's my buddy and, and I love that about her and I start part two of this series through the Old Testament book of Esther with this little tidbit about relational intimacy because our main character, or at least last week's blog post, Xerxes, our main focus, um, is desperately in need of not only a wife, but a leading lady who's also his buddy. So in Esther chapter two, when, when the chapter uh, when the chapter opens up after Esther or after Xerxes has signed a decree in a drunken state that kicked his queen Vashti off her royal throne, we find the king alone and lonely. In fact, it's why Esther chapter two verse one says, "After these things, when the anger of the king Xerxes had subsided, he remembered." Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed against her. Now, there's plenty going on in just that one verse alone because, uh, first of all, the, the phrase, after these things, man, that is hugely significant. And it's significant because four years have actually passed between the first verse of chapter two and the last verse of chapter one. If you recall in the first blog post last week, straight out of Persia, um, I explained that Xerxes threw this extravagant party in the third year of his reign in an effort to garner support for his invasion of Greece. Well, according to Esther chapter 2, verse 16, the events of chapter 2 actually take place during the seventh year of Xerxes' reign. So if you do the math, four years have actually passed since the end of chapter 1. Now, what's more important, however, than the duration of time that has passed is the events that transpired during that four-year period. And, and basically, the movie 300 has happened. History tells us that Xerxes led his armies into Greece, but failed disastrously. I mean, the collective defense mounted by the Greeks states not only succeeded in pushing his armies back, but they actually liberated several Greek city-states on the fringe of Persia itself. So Xerxes, at the end of chapter 1, or beginning of chapter 2, is really forced to return to his capital city of Susa in shame and with great losses. So when we open up chapter 2... Verse one, man, there is a you sense that there is a heavy gloominess about him. Like this dude seriously needs a hug. Specifically, he really misses his queen, his former queen, Vashti, because let's face it, she was an amazing woman. And that's what the passage is telling us when it says that he remembered Vashti. So at this point, Xerxes' anger has subsided at her. He's no longer drunk. He's come to his senses and realizes that he actually had a gemstone on his hands. And we'll discover later on in this story that once a decree is passed in Persia, it, it can't be overturned. So reinstating Vashti isn't really a feasible option. 
Now, though as king, he could have any woman he wants. I mean, he's king, right? But but, but Xerxes is not looking for a quick fling, a one-night stand to drown his sorrows. This guy is looking for a wife, a friend, a buddy, somebody he can share his bed with as long as well as his wins, and, and especially now, um, his losses. So that's where he is. It's in this broken-hearted state that his personal attendants find him, and it's why they actually suggest that a national search be made for Persia's next top model who will fill the role that Vashti once did. And so they come to him, and in verse 2, they actually suggest, they say, King, let us search the empire, in verse 2, let us search the empire to find a beautiful or beautiful young virgins for the king. And let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they're all given beauty treatments. And after that, the young woman who most pleases the kings will be made queen instead of Vashti. Now, that, that's the verse, right? We'll actually come back to, you might have heard it, a little statement there about beauty treatments. We'll come back to that because it's important to the narrative. But for now, I think it's time for us to finally meet our leading lady, Esther. So Esther chapter 2, verse 5 to 9, introduces us to her. And here's what it says about Esther. It says, Now there was at the citadel of Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, and the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. And he, that's Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now, the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So, it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa in the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken into the king's palace, into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. So, right off the back, there are at least four things that we immediately know about Esther based on that introduction. Number one, Esther was a Jew, right? So, she's a Jew, one of the several thousand, hundreds of thousands exiled Jews living in Persia. Number two, she was orphaned at a very young age. Number three, she was adopted and raised by her uncle Mordecai. That's an important name. Remember that. And number three... She, she is drop-dead gorgeous, right? Like when the scripture goes out of its way to point out that a person is beautiful of form and face, man, that's a whole other level of hotness, all right? Now, don't think me shallow for pointing this out. The scripture itself highlights it. And besides that, it's actually an important detail because it plays no small role in her selection to be one of the many women competing for the king's affection and ultimately for the queen's throne. Now, another important detail worth pointing out is the fact that as a Jew, Esther worships the one true God, Jehovah. And as a result, it's highly likely that she has no real desire to live out her days in the palace of, of the Persians who don't worship her God, but are in fact pagans. And I say all of that to point out the fact that Esther is, is more than likely not too eager to be selected for this beauty pageant. Like, though she willingly goes with the plan, in fact, the word is passive in its stance. It says she was taken. Um, we can safely assume that she, she's doing so reluctantly, more than likely hopes that she doesn't come out winning the stupid thing. In fact, the secret that she hides about her nationality in verse 10 makes my speculation even more plausible. 
And something else that's not actually immediately obvious about Esther is, is what I like to describe as her humble winsomeness. In other words, aside of Esther's beauty and attractiveness, there was something else about her presence and her character that just drew people to her. And I say so because at least on three separate occasions, we're told that people were favorably disposed towards her. In other words, they loved her. They liked her. So the first time in verse is in verse 9 when she meets Haggai, who's the head eunuch in charge of the harem. Um, this dude is so impressed with Esther at first meet that he hooks her up immediately with her own executive suite and, and maids to serve her. The second time is in verse 15 where it says, Esther won the favor, listen to this, of everyone who saw her. So not only is Haggai, the boss, impressed with her, but even the palace staff thought she was a great person to be around, like she was really cool. And the third time is when she meet Xerxes himself, and we'll get to that in a, in a moment. Now, unless you read that and, and start thinking to yourself, well, they favored her because she was beautiful, she was hot, whatever. Listen, I would remind you that there were several hundred other women in that same palace who were just as pretty as Esther was. So physical beauty, in fact, physical beauty was one of the sole criteria for being selected to be in a competition, yet none of them had the grace and charm and humble winsomeness that Esther did. Now, while all of that may be true for Esther, the opposite is actually true for every other girl selected. First, let's look at the plan to get them all ready and pretty for Xerxes. It says this. It says, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by another six months with special perfumes and ointments. And when it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was giving her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. And that evening, she was taken to the king's private room, and the next morning, she was brought to the second harem, where the king's wives lived. There, she could be under the care. She could be under the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch in charge of the concubines. And she would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. By the way, that's Esther chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. So think about that scenario for a moment, right? Because for all the Persian single ladies selected, this was an opportunity of a lifetime. Like this was Persia's version of America's Next Top Model meets the Bachelor. So The Bachelor is a show about a bunch of women competing to win the affections of a man. Um, the earlier seasons of the America's Next Top Model is actually about aspiring models, all female, uh, moving in together into one luxurious house and competing to win a contract with a supermodel agency. And so that's why I say it's a combination of both shows. Now, while the uh, while America's Next Top Model features gorgeous runway models, the main star of the show is oftentimes their attitudes towards one another, right? Like, like it's a great show because it shows the human side of these models, but at the same time, it's a, it's a bad show because it shows the human side of these models and the conflict and the competitive, competitiveness among them that just often leaves very little to be desired. And this was no less true of the girls gathered in the Persian palace. Every girl competing wants to win the highly coveted role of queen, and much more than that, every girl present is eagerly looking forward to, get this, 
12 months of beauty and cosmetic pampering with several maids at her beck and call. I mean, picture it if you can, all right? So January, face treatment. February, hair, getting your hair done. March, nails. April, clothes shop in May, perfumes and shoes. Like on and on. I mean, imagine the shopping list and the stores. We're talking Prada and Tiffany's and Vera Wang and Dolce & Gabbana and Saks Fifth Ave. I mean, on and on and on. And I paint that picture for you so that you'll understand that Esther has just been drafted into a highly competitive environment that really can bring out the worst in people. Like, have you seen the certain shows of or seasons of uh, the cat fights on America's Next Top Model? And it's for this reason that the ladies are assigned a head eunuch, head guy, who I would describe as Persia's version of Tyra Banks, to oversee them. An interesting detail here, um, the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Commentary, page 485, points out this interesting detail about the lodging of all these ladies. It says, it says, we know much about the administration of ancient harems from records found primarily in Assyria. These documents demonstrate that harem, which really means house of women, that harem life was well regulated under the watchful eye of trusted eunuchs. There were frequent conflicts among the women as they would sometimes scheme and plot for favors for themselves. And so the eunuchs were charged to make sure that such conflicts did not erupt in violence. Interesting detail, right? And with all the ladies vying for the ultimate prize, men, it would have been next to impossible to stand out as unique in this group, especially if you were being demure as I'm proposing Esther was. Yet, we read this about her in verse 9 about the first few days of Esther being a part of the harem. It says, Haggai, get this, Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. In fact, he quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with her own beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids specifically or specially chosen from the king's palace. And he moved her and her maids into the place in the best place in the harem. And I believe it was the humble part of her humble winsomeness that I spoke of earlier that caused Esther to stand out in this group. Like, not only was she obedient to the instructions of her older cousin, uh, Mordecai, who raised her and gave her some very important advice about going to the palace, um, which, by the way, is very telling of Esther's respect for authority, but verse 10 indicates that she probably maintained a low profile among all the ladies because she did not want her nationality known. Furthermore, when Esther's moment finally came to spend the night with the king, Esther humbled herself and accepted the advice of the one guy who knew the king the most and, and, and only took with her what he advised. And this was a situation where, man, I mean, she very well could have asserted her individuality. We don't know what Haggai suggested that she take in with her to the king, but whatever it was, Esther could have very well said, I I'm sorry, Haggai, but, but that's just not really my style. Or, or she might have said, thanks, but you know what? I, I heard some of the other girls try that. I'm going to go with something else. But Esther didn't do any of that. Rather, she was humble enough to yield to the words of Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, where it says, The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man or a wise woman listens to advice. When you consider the fact that someone with an unmatched natural beauty like Esther just spent a whole year enhancing her looks so that she's near perfection meant it would have been next to impossible to retain a humble state of mind. Heck, I recently get a, got a haircut on the same day that my wife bought me a brand new Calvin Klein t-shirt, and I thought I was the hottest thing since Will Smith. And that's just one shirt, one. 
Like, I'm ashamed to even think of what would happen if I had a year's worth of what Esther was offered. And so it, it begs the question here, though, like, like, think about your life. Like, what kind of attitude might you develop if you were involved in a year-long project where the sole purpose was to make you look pretty? Like, how humble would you remain? The good news in the story is that her humility, Esther's humility and her winsomeness pays off because verse 16 to 20 wraps up the story neatly for us by saying, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king, listen to this, loved Esther more than any of the other young women. I mean, he was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. And to celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young, young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a, a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was following Mordecai's directions, just as she did when she lived in his Home. So, alas, we have a new queen, and Xerxes has a new lover, and ultimately a new buddy. If these events occurred today, it could be said of Esther that she is the breakout starlet who's just made her way from working as a cashier at Walmart to becoming the first lady of the White House. Right? God does work in mysterious ways, doesn't he? And even more importantly, we will discover shortly in the story in the coming weeks that God's timing for blessing in her life is not only impeccable, but incredibly purposeful. So that's where we're heading. And, and listen, there, there are several lessons to be learned from this second chapter of this series on Esther. Hopefully some of it jumped out as you, as you read along. But if it didn't, let me wrap this up by giving you three lessons that were most meaningful for me as we made our way through this chapter. Lesson number one, the traits that you develop in your life now will get magnified later in the place that God is taking you. Let me say that again. The traits that you develop in your life now will get magnified later in the place where God is taking you. So Esther won favor with everyone she met in the palace because, listen, she was already winsome as a young girl in Mordecai's home when he was raising her. Like There's every indication from the rest of the story that the qualities that we're going to admire about Esther as queen were qualities that Mordecai had helped raise in her years earlier. The point being... Whatever character you develop now will become even more pronounced when you step into leadership or marriage or whatever the next thing is that you're trusting God to take you into. So the question then becomes, man, what, what qualities in your life are you working hard to develop today? Like, like what do you want to see get magnified in your life later? You got to start working on it now. Lesson number two. How you treat the authority figures in your life now may indicate the kind of authority that God will entrust you with later in life. How you treat the authority figures in your life now may indicate the kind of authority that God will entrust with you later in life. Now, this lesson is very subtle in Esther's life, but it's nonetheless present. This is also what's known, by the way, as the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. It's an axiom of life that we that we reap proportionately whatever we put in, right? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, whoever sows plants sparingly will also reap, harvest sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
So think about your life. Like how respectful are you of the authority figures in your life? Like think about your parents, your bosses, teachers, pastors, cops. Um, go big. Political leaders, all right? I know Facebook is a big place to rant, but are you kind of just blatantly disrespectful towards authority? Because according to the biblical principle of sowing and reaping, the way you address those men and women in leadership over your life now and the way you address and treat them, the level of respect you show them, will be proportionate to what you will someday experience when God places you in a position of influence over others. Trust me, I speak from experience on this and I've had to learn the hard way firsthand. You may think to yourself that challenging authority figures in your life and swimming against the tide of your instruction makes you out to be some sort of progressive rebel or trend-setting revolutionary, but mark my words, it will come back and bite you in your little insurgent tushy. Lesson number three. Your talent or beauty may get you in the door, but godly character is what will sustain your longevity there. Your talent or beauty may get you in the door, but godly character is what will sustain your longevity there. So while Esther's physical form has played a, her physical beauty has played a significant role in this narrative, I also hope I've conveyed the fact that her beauty was only a starting point. Like, like it, it was only a starting point. It was, her, it was actually her humble winsomeness that ultimately placed her on the throne and of course God's sovereign hand guiding her. You know, the scripture speaks of prioritizing godly character character development over cultivating your physical looks or even talents. When it says in 1 Timothy 4.8, it says physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. One of my seminary professors used to tell us, he used to say, listen, pray that your talent or your looks doesn't take you to a place in life where your character cannot sustain you. And I got to tell you, after having witnessed many brothers and sisters in ministry fail due to character issues, I have since been praying, Lord Jesus, grow in me, create in me, stir up in me now the character and integrity that will sustain me when you bring me into the good works that you prepared in advance for me to do. So a good prayer to pray really is what David prayed in Psalm 51, where he says, Lord, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So whether we find ourselves in the aisles of Walmart or in the Oval Office at the White House, man, I pray that our focus will always remain on being like Christ. And in so doing, I pray that God continually grant us a willing spirit to sustain godly character in us. And I hope you join me in the coming weeks as we continue to uncover God's destiny for this incredible woman. In the meantime, please feel free to um, uh, scroll down to the bottom of this page and sign up to download the accompanying devotional study I created. May God bless you. Thanks for reading. Thanks for listening. And uh, don't forget, because of Christ in you, God still likes you. Peace.